Will you please pray with me? Our Father in Heaven, what an honor it is to be before You this morning and to worship You as Your people. God, for those of us who know You, we're so glad that You've made us a part of Your family. We can remember a time when we we did not see and did not know You, did not understand, and You've opened our eyes and everything has changed. So thank You for this, God. You, We love You, but You have loved us into loving You. So thank You for setting Your affection on us long before we made any move toward You. And I pray for those who are with us today. Surely there's people here today who don't know You and whose eyes have not been opened to see Your glory, Your splendor, Your beauty, how great You are. Because if they did, they'd worship You. So we ask that You would open eyes today. If there's hearts that are wounded, maybe hardened to where they they doubt everything that they hear from Your Word. God, we pray that You would help them to see the unreasonableness in their lack of faith and that they would turn to You and trust You and the good news that they find in Your Word and hopefully preached from this pulpit. We love You. We look forward to reading and studying Genesis chapter 39 together. Thank you for inspiring this book and for having a plan for us today so that we could be helped by it. We love you and give you all praise, glory, and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's see how Joseph is doing. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 39. And if you don't, as Pastor Curtis mentioned, there should be one in front of you, and you're welcome to use that today or take it with you if you don't own a Bible. But here we have Joseph. We're back to him in chapter 39. We're left with sort of a cliffhanger at the end of chapter 37. And then chapter 38 is this chapter-long break where we looked at Joseph's big brother Judah. But now we're being brought back to Joseph. Poor Joseph. Poor Joseph, right? Hated by his family. Loved by his dad. Probably loved too much by his dad. Brothers, all 12 of them, hated him. By the end of chapter 37, his brothers had conspired to sell their brother into slavery. That's hatred. That's hatred. This is more than a sibling rivalry, right? These brothers despised Joseph. In fact, their first plan was just to kill him. They had him away from home, away from protective dad. Their first plan was just to kill him and then cover it up and lie to dad about it. And then Judah's got a better plan. He says, Look, we can take out three birds with one stone. We can get rid of our brother. We can, we can escape uh, any feelings of guilt that would come from murdering him. And we can make some money if we just sell him to these slave traders that are passing by. So that's exactly what they do. They basically put him on a slave ship. That's what that would be like. These Ishmaelites that are passing through on their way to Egypt, and they pawn off their brother. 
So we're picking that up now in verse 1 because we've gone a chapter wondering the tension is built. Moses, the author, did that on purpose. And now we want to know what's become of Joseph. Verse 1, chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The author refers to Potiphar three different times in this text as an Egyptian. Three different times he calls him an Egyptian, which would have reminded Israel, who would have been the first ones reading this, of their enslavement to Egypt many years before. So that's what Moses is trying to do. Potiphar, this is where Joseph is. He's a slave to an Egyptian. An Egyptian. An Egyptian. That's going to spark all kinds of emotions in Israel who's reading this because we were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. We were enslaved to Egypt. So that's where Joseph is now. He's in Egypt and he's a slave. He has fallen very far. He's fallen far. He has gone from being his father's favored son to a slave in Egypt. He's gone from having all the rights to having no rights. He's fallen far. Really far. Can it get any worse? Oh yes. Oh yeah. Friends, it can always get worse. I thought about that being the point of today's sermon. <laughs> Wouldn't have been very cheerful, but it would have been true. You think it's bad right now. Some of you, it is bad. Some of you, it's bad. You are, you are in the middle of it. And you are in a painful place and there is suffering and there is uncertainty and frustration. It's agonizing, isn't it? Do you know it could get worse? It could get far worse. It's going to get worse for Joseph. Joseph reminds us of Jesus because Joseph has now gone from this place of exaltation to this place of humiliation. But he's not done on this journey. So he's gone from an exalted place to a lowly place. He's gone from being a son to a slave. And it will get worse before it gets better. Which reminds us of the life of Jesus Christ. It will get worse before Joseph is exalted again for the salvation of his people. Which mirrors the life of Jesus Christ who went from an exalted place at the right end of the Father went from a son and came and became a servant to a humiliated place here on earth. His life materially, physically did not go well. Down, down, down. Until he finally suffered and was tortured and died on a cross, but then was brought back to life by God the Father and was again exalted. And why was he exalted? So that he could save his people. Well, that's the life of Joseph. Exalted place. He's in this valley of humiliation where he'll be for a while. It will get far worse than this. But eventually, 
You know how it ends. He ends up in an exalted place in Egypt so that he can save his people, Israel. So this is where Joseph is now. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Just five words that I'd like to read at the beginning of verse 2. And spend some time talking about these five words because they're the most important words in the chapter. These are the most important words in the chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. That is clearly the theme of chapter 39. Moses is going to say that phrase four times. He's going to remind the author four times of this truth. The Lord was with Joseph. That is the main theme. The the main lesson in chapter 39 is not how to deal with lust. (laughs) That's often how chapter 39 is treated, right? Look what he does. Look how he deals with sexual temptation. Look how he runs from sexual temptation. And the point usually when priests is so men run from sexual... If you've got to run out of the house naked, run as Joseph did, and flee sexual immorality. That's not the main lesson. The truth is, is most men cannot relate to Joseph. Most men do not find themselves in a situation like Joseph did. Most of us men are not trying to figure out what to do the next time our employer's beautiful wife tries to rip our clothes off. (laughs) Oh, finally a text that tells me what to do. We're not connecting to that. That is not the main theme of chapter 39. The main theme, and Moses makes it clear, the Lord was with Joseph. And he's going to say this over and over and over again. Now all the chapters that follow in the book of Genesis, all the way through chapter 50, Joseph is the main character. And Moses is never going to repeat this over and over again for the rest of the book of Genesis. But he says it in this chapter over and over and over again. Now does Moses mean to communicate then that in chapter 39, God was with Joseph and then for the rest of his life, God was not with Joseph. That's not what Moses is doing. This is the point that Moses is making. Because Joseph, all the way at the end of the book in chapter 50, will reflect back and say, God was with me the whole time. God was with me the whole time. But Moses chooses in the very first chapter of Joseph's life in Egypt, where he'll be for the rest of his life. Moses says four times, because what he wants to do is to embed this truth Deeply in our mind so that as we read the rest of the life of Joseph, we will remember the Lord is with him. The Lord is with this man. Moses wants us to take that truth with us as we move on through the story of Joseph. Because you're going to read about all that happens in Joseph's life. And what Moses is doing here is saying, don't forget. Don't forget. I'm not going to say this over and over and over again every chapter. But I'm establishing this now. 
wherever you find Joseph, remember, the Lord is with him. So he embeds that by saying it four times. God will always be with Joseph. And yet it's interesting. God does not speak to Joseph ever the way he spoke to his forefathers. And yet God will be with him. He will not audibly come and speak as he did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But nevertheless, God makes it clear he loved Joseph and was always with them. Terence Fretham, in his commentary on Genesis, said this, God's presence, neither localized geographically nor dramatic or spectacular, is an unobtrusive, working-behind-the-scenes kind of presence. If you're a Christian, God is always with you. If you're a Christian, the Lord is always with you. But what we tend to think is when when we think of the presence of God, we tend to think in very dramatic and spectacular ways. So we say things like, God was with me. And we say that after we have some dramatic experience or some spectacular experience. Maybe we were at a place and there was worship music and the worship music was done in such a way that we felt that God was really there and really present. And when we left, we said things like, God was in that place. Well, if you're a Christian, God is always in that place. The Lord is with you. And so it's not necessarily dramatic or spectacular, but the presence of God, as Terence said, is an unobtrusive, working-behind-the-scenes kind of presence. In other words, when God says the Lord is with Joseph and the Lord was with Joseph, this is what we are to understand. The author is saying that everything in Joseph's life was governed by God's providential care. That's what this means. It doesn't mean that sometimes God is geographically in proximity to Joseph and sometimes He's not. And sometimes when God's present with you, He's geographically in proximity to you and sometimes He's not. That's not what this means. To say that the Lord was with Joseph and to implant that in our mind as we read the rest of Joseph's life is to say remember that everything, everything, in Joseph's life, was governed by God's providential care. The Lord was with Joseph. So let's talk about providence since we bring up the word. I'll give you a long definition and a short definition. Some of you like long definitions, like with numbers in the definition. Some of you like real short definitions. This is how Wayne Grudem defines providence. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which He created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill His purposes. 
I want you to commit that to memory. (laughs) Or a shorter definition, providence. God's omniscient direction of the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. That's providence. It's a good word communicating a good reality. God's omniscient direction of the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. So let's put these ideas together and these words together that we we hear often and understand how they relate to one another. Let's look at the words sovereignty, decree, and providence. When we speak of God's sovereignty, you've heard this, God is a sovereign God. Sovereignty expresses God's prerogative, God's authority to rule and govern the whole universe. Speaks of God's power and His authority and His control. When we speak of God's sovereignty, that's what we're talking about. Sovereignty expresses God's authority to rule and govern all His creation. When we speak of God's decree, God's decree expresses God's authoritative plan for all things. So not only is God sovereign and He has the ability and the authority to rule and to govern all things, but He has a plan of how all things shall go. And we would say that God has decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. God is in charge. God's providence expresses the manner in which God carries out His plan. God has a plan. God has a purpose. He has a plan to carry out His purpose. And providence is simply the carrying out of God's plan. So everything that happens is providence. All circumstances that befall you are providence. Nothing is outside the control of God. Nothing is controlling God. Nothing happens that is apart from God's plan. And nothing happens that is against God's purposes. So providence is the working out of God's plan. So, Christians do not believe in luck. This is how we really understand what providence is. Because the word that is often used for providence is luck. You're lucky. No, there is no luck. Everything that happens is according to providence. My son, Peyton, came up to me the other day. He's 11 years old. 11 years old. We were sitting down talking and he was about to go and and, and do something. And I looked at him, not thinking, I guess. And I said, good luck, son. And he stopped. (laughs) And he turned around. And actually, I see the humility in his eyes. Where he's he's thinking, (sighs) my dad's a pastor. (laughs) And he reads he reads a lot of books and studies and prays and 
but I'm pretty sure I need to correct him on something. I can see, I can just see this working. I realized right when I said it. And I see this just going on behind the scenes. And so I was, I was so proud of him. And so with great humility, but sincerity, he looks me right in the eyes and says, Dad, you remember there's no such thing as luck. <laughs> Only God's good providence. Amen. <laughs> I said, here you go. You know, open up the MacBook, here's the document, Genesis 39, start writing, 8.45 Sunday morning, you be on the pulpit for a sound check, because you could probably do this as well as I could, he understands, and that's true, Christians believe in providence, not luck, the difference is that luck is purposeless, and it's random, and it is without an author. Right? That's what luck is. Well, you're lucky. No purpose behind it. There's no designer behind it. There's no author behind it. It's just random. Providence is purposeful and authored. So whatsoever comes to pass does not make you lucky or unlucky. It makes you in the middle of the providence of God. So remember, to say that God the Lord is with Joseph is to say that everything in Joseph's life was governed by God's providential care. We need to know that as we read on now. Let's look at the rest of verse 2. So the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So here's what we read here. We we're basically reading the results of the Lord being with Joseph. And, and Joseph is climbing the corporate ladder as a slave, which is pretty impressive. You can't start much more at the bottom than as a slave. But he's such a good slave that he ends up in charge of, of everything in Potiphar's household. And so there's several results that come. Because the Lord was with Joseph. One, we're told in verse 2, he became a successful man. That doesn't mean if the Lord is with you, you're going to be successful. And so if you're not successful, it means the Lord is not with you. It doesn't work like that. But in this case, he was successful because God's providence. The Lord was with him. As well, verse 3 said, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. This is great. Joseph became a living testimony to pagan Potiphar. Potiphar sees something different in Joseph's life. And he knows that the difference is because of the God that Joseph serves. The Lord is with him. He's become a living testimony before Potiphar. In verse 5, we see that Joseph found such favor in Potiphar's sight that he was put in charge of his entire household. And not only that, but the second part of verse 5 tells us that 
the success of Joseph rubbed off. Potiphar became successful. And Potiphar became successful because Joseph was in his house. You remember what God told Abraham? One of the things that God told Abraham is that all nations on earth will be blessed because of you. Here's, here's Abraham's descendant, Joseph. Listen, God always blesses His people. God always blesses His people. If you're a child of God, you are blessed. Now, don't say blessed equals and then tell God what that is. Right? You say, well, I'm not blessed because I don't have a job right now. Well, we never said that blessed means you have a job all the time. So we can't define and, 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 and substitute and put in there what we think blessing is. But you can be assured of this. You're God's child. He's blessing you. God's always blessing His people. And here is this biblical reality. As God blesses His people, he, he blesses them so much that it sort of spills over onto those who are around them. This happens with Christian co-workers. This happens with Christian parents and their children. There is blessing and good things that flow to those who are just around Christians who love and honor God because God blesses them so much this overflows. This is what Potiphar is experiencing. Does Potiphar love God? No. Is Potiphar honoring God? No. But Potiphar has Joseph in his house. And the Lord is blessing Joseph to the degree that even Potiphar is blessed. So summary, first part of verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concerns about anything but the food he ate. That's a big sweeping statement. Moses wants you to know just how far up the ladder Joseph has climbed. He takes care of everything for Potiphar. The only thing Potiphar thinks about is what am I going to have for dinner? That's it. Everything else taken care of by Joseph. So here's Joseph again in an exalted place. If you were going to chart Joseph's life out and do a line graph, you'd see that his life goes like this. Have you seen that in his life so far? Favored son, hated by brothers, given a robe by his dad, having dreams and visions of how he's going to rule, being sold into slavery. Rises up in Potiphar's house and becomes head of all the other slaves. And this is going to continue to go on his entire life. I wonder how many of you, if you were to chart your life, it would look very similar. That's not, what I, that's not the kind of life that I want. I don't think it was the kind of life that Joseph wanted. In fact, to be honest, if you were to give me the choice between this and just this, I'd say this. I'd say this. You say, well, if you, do, if you get this, yeah, you got some lows, but you, you know, you got the highs too. So it's ups and downs. So if you just do this, you don't get the ups. And I say, I don't care about the ups. Just give me this. That's what I want. Just even. No surprises. That's what I'd like. Me. Predictability. That's not Joseph's life. It's up and down. Up and down. Up and down. A lot of times, not even the result of anything that he's doing. It's the result of God's what? Providence. Because remember, what does God want us to remember as we read the story and the life of Joseph? 
the Lord is with him. Well, surely he's not with him. The Lord is with him. That means that everything, everything that happens in Joseph's life, it's all governed by God's providential care. But he's at a, he's at a high point here. He's got some things going for him. He's doing well in Potiphar's house. But he's got something that's not going for him that you think would be going for him. And that is the second part of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I think that sounds like a good thing. That's not a good thing. The author is telling us this now. I want you to know something. Joseph okay, was handsome in form and appearance. You need to know this. Because everything that happens for the rest of the chapter is because Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. This begs the question, how handsome was he? Ladies? (laughs) How handsome was this man? Do you know the answer? This is the Best looking man in the Bible. Right here, ladies. Genesis 39. This will never be said of any other man in the Bible. The phrase that is used is telling us that he has everything together. This man looks good from head to toe. Very few men, right? Look good from head to toe. This is a good part, not so good. Good part, not so good. Head to toe. He's a specimen. Six-pack. He's got the abs. He's got everything that a gal might want in a man physically. There's only one other person in the Bible who is described this way. And do you know who it is? It's his mom, Rachel. Only one woman described this way. Only one man described this way. Well, Joseph takes after his mother. Best looking man in the entire Bible. Now, man, you may think that you want to be this guy. Oh, that's what I want to be. That would be so cool. I would just, I would love that. Just be the best looking man on the planet. Well, as we're going to see in the verses to follow, There are great advantages to being the middle-aged, overweight, bald guy. (laughs) Okay? Great advantages. You don't want to be this guy. Okay? This comes with a lot of trouble that you don't have when you're the middle-aged, overweight, bald guy. There's things you don't have to worry about. Oh, he's got some things to worry about. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Hey, most of us do not have to worry about this ever happening. But Joseph did. Lie with me. She's not asking him to take a nap. She wants him to go to bed with her. She's making a proposition. Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge, he 
is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You wonder what Joseph is made of. This is what Joseph is made of. He gives basically two main reasons why he won't go to bed with Potiphar's wife. Number one, sleeping with Potiphar's wife would be a sin against Potiphar. Number two, sleeping with Potiphar's wife would be a sin against God. This is all sin. All sin is sin first and foremost against God. All sin. Some of you may have uh, imaginary categories of sin in your mind. These are sins that I commit against people, and then these are the really bad sins that I commit directly against God. Well, everything that you do sinfully, whatever categories you put it in, it all belongs in the category of sinning against God. When you sin against a person, you're sinning against an image bearer of God. And anytime you sin, no matter who it's against, you've decided first to disobey your God. And so Joseph looks at Potiphar's wife, regardless of how tempting it may have been, and he said, I can't do this. I can't do this. I must remain loyal to my master and my master. I cannot sin against your husband in this way. You belong to him. You belong to him. You don't belong to me. That bed is for two people who belong to one another. I don't belong in that bed. I'm not going to sin against my master that way. And I'm not going to sin against my master that way. It's interesting. You remember David's repentance after he had been finally convicted of his sin against an entire family, an entire people. Adultery, murder, cover-up. When he's finally convicted, he cries out to God in Psalm 51.4. And do you remember what he said to God? Against you only have I sinned, God. Now, in one sense, we say, well, that's not true. What do you mean against you only have you sinned? You also sinned against Bathsheba, and you sinned against Uriah, and you, you sinned against your people that you're leading. The point he was making was this. My sin, first and foremost, was a turning from God, a disobeying God. And the worst of what I've done is I've been a rebel toward God. And I've turned from Him. And Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, I wish to remain loyal to your master and to my master. So he says, no. It's quite a speech. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Imagine the temptation for Joseph. This is not a one-time proposition. Over and over and over again. Day after day. It means that every day, this woman was saying, hey, let's jump in bed together. Let's have some fun. My husband's gone. No one will know. Surely she was an attractive woman. We know she was an attractive woman because of who she was married to. She was married to possibly the man that was second command in Egypt and could have any woman that he wanted as his wife. 
So you can bet that Potiphar's wife was a beautiful woman. And yet day after day, Joseph says no. It is a reminder of how vigilant we need to be against sin. All of us against sin. Have you heard people talk of their sin in the past tense? Say things like, I'm so glad that I don't struggle with that sin anymore. Be very, very careful. Very careful. There is a difference between experiencing victory and being victorious. And you'll be victorious when you're in a new glorified body in heaven, incapable of sin. Then there will be true victory. But do not misinterpret uh, experiencing a victory here and there as, 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 as having your sin licked and, and beating it and being done with it. That is the kind of pride where your enemy has you exactly where you want. The guard comes down, doesn't it? Some of you have fallen prey to this. I've fallen prey to this. I'm so glad I don't have to take the measures I used to. Thank you, God. Whew. Right before I get taken out. We must be on guard. Rise up against the first hints of sin like a lion. Rise up against it. Joseph's a good example there. Day after day, he doesn't let up. Now this, of course, is all, if you're remembering, a, a sharp contrast to what we read in chapter 38 when we studied Joseph's big brother, Judah. His big bad brother. Because his brother Judah also interacted with a woman, but in a very ungodly way. He abused the beautiful Tamar and just gratified himself and had his way with her when she did not belong to him. And now here is his younger brother Joseph in sharp contrast, committed to faithfulness to his God, saying no over and over and over again. A good lesson, but not the primary lesson. The primary lesson, the primary theme, remember, is wherever Joseph goes, whatever is happening, remember, the Lord is with Joseph. Everything in Joseph's life is being governed by God's providential care. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. Uh-oh. We know how that's going to go, don't we? No one's in the house. The two of them are all by themselves. Right? We set up rules, don't we, as young couples dating, that we won't put ourselves in this situation because we know what happens if you have two people who are attractive and in a house where there's no one else. We know where this goes. And so with wisdom, we avoid these kinds of situations. Well, here Joseph is, and he finds himself alone with this woman. No one else is around. And she says, verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. This, this is an aggressive woman. This is a command she issues now. This is different. This is not a suggestion. She's not just coming on to him. She's, she's now issuing a command. That actually makes sense when you consider that it was common in Egyptian slave culture 
that one of the duties of slaves was to provide upon request sexual favors for their masters. So she now has that kind of force behind what she's saying to Joseph when she grabs hold of him and says, listen, enough is enough. I'm going to have you right now. Lie with me, she says. But, this is famous, many of you have heard this, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. How much trouble do this guy's robes get him in? He needs to stop wearing robes. This will be the second time that his robe gets him into a lot of trouble. Verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of her house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice, Oh, please, are you kidding me? Listen to this gal. Lying through her teeth. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. I just barely made it. I'm a victim. Help me. I'm crying. Do you see these tears? What are you going to do? Well, if you're a man, what are you going to do? You're going to be manipulated. You're going to be manipulated. Women, you know this. You have an ability to manipulate men. It's rampant, right? Women are great, great manipulators. Now let me blame the men because that may sound offensive. Because men are so easily manipulated. We are so easily manipulated by women, especially the women we love. I'm seeing no surprised faces on any of the married couples that are sitting here, right? Like, oh, yes, right, we understand this. We, we deal with this. <laughs> this, is, this is true. I love my wife. I love my wife. Um, uh, there's no one on the planet I am interested in making happy more than my wife. I want her to be happy. I want her to have joy. She could use that against me to get all kinds of things that she wants. Well, how does Potiphar's wife do it? Oh, she uses one of a woman's greatest weapons. Tears. She cries. Man, we can't handle this, right? We do not handle this well. No, don't. Don't cry. Don't, don't do that. Don't cry. Please stop. For many reasons, right? Please stop crying. But, but don't, don't do this. What, what can I do? We, we immediately start thinking, what can, uh, you know, agenda number one, what can I do to help her stop crying? Because this has got to stop. And it's tunnel vision on that right now. She knows this. She knows this. So she manipulates these men. Verse 17. So Potiphar comes home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. That's the second time she's done that. You hear what she's doing, right? This is Adam and Eve-esque. She's blaming her husband. This wicked evil man, he took advantage of me. 
And this never would have happened if what? What's the you know, subscript? If you hadn't brought him in here, it's your fault. It's your fault. You brought him in. She calls him a Hebrew. This is probably a racial slur. So there's racial tension in what she's saying here. He came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. And manipulated Potiphar responds in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Actually, the appropriate sentence should have been death. It was a very clear-cut case. I do wonder why Potiphar did not sentence Joseph to death. Could it be he doubted his wife? Maybe he knows her as well as we do. But nevertheless... When we've read about Joseph up until this point and we've seen his commitment to moral purity and his commitment to faithfulness, we may find ourselves wondering, how will Joseph be rewarded for his moral purity, his faithfulness? I mean, look how he has stood up against this woman. Look how he has fought the good fight. What will be the reward? Because when you fight like this, and you're committed to moral purity like this, one thing I know, it will go well for you. So, what is the reward? As we read here, what is the reward that Joseph gets for his moral purity and his faithfulness? And the answer is, Prison. Prison. Good job, Joseph. Prison. This did not work as a sermon application. It it did not work. Resist sexual temptation, men, so that you too can end up in prison. That's got no ring to it. Doesn't work. Prison. Now we should remember something right now. Did Moses embed it in your mind well enough? Don't forget. Whatever happens in Joseph's life, it is governed by God's providential care. The Lord was with Joseph, prison. God did not keep Joseph out of the pit. God did not keep Joseph out of Potiphar's house. And God does not keep Joseph out of prison. If God is with you, friend, if God is with you, that does not mean you will necessarily be spared from painful experiences. So Lord loved Joseph. Lord loves Joseph. Has the Lord abandoned Joseph? No. Is the Lord with Joseph? 
the Lord is with Joseph. Where is the Lord with Joseph right now? In prison. Is he there justly? No, he's there unjustly. God didn't keep him out of the pit. God didn't keep him out of Potiphar's house. God didn't keep him out of prison. It clearly, if the Lord is with you, it clearly does not mean that you will necessarily be promptly vindicated. Now all Christians will be vindicated. Your cause will be shown as right. But for many of you, that vindication will tarry. And it will not be prompt. The Lord being with you does not mean you will escape fire. And it does not mean that you will be promptly vindicated. Verse 21. Here are the words again. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Now when we read that, we know what we think should come next. Okay, he's in prison. That's bad. But alright, here we go. That's right. The Lord was with Joseph and the Lord showed him steadfast love. I don't even need to keep reading. Of course I know how God's going to show him steadfast love. How are you going to, he's going to find keys in his lap. All right, the door is going to be left open by a flighty jailer. Everyone's going to be asleep. He's going to make his way out of the city and somehow through all these miraculous providences, he's going to make his way back home. Because I just got told that the Lord is with them. That's right, I remember that. And now the Lord showed him steadfast love. But how does the Lord show him steadfast love? He doesn't take him out of prison. The Lord showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. This guy is quite the employee. I mean, you think he's at the bottom of the barrel. You think he's in the mail room. He's way below the mail room. And this guy just keeps moving up. He's in Potiphar's house as a slave. Ends up running Potiphar's house. Gets thrown to prison. Ends up running the prison from the inside. This is a life coach right here. <laughs> I want to talk to Joseph. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Here's the clear theme of chapter 39. The Lord is with Joseph not only in prosperity, but in adversity. That's it. He's with him on the mountaintop and He's with him in the bottom of the valley. The Lord is with him in prosperity and poverty. Not just here, but there. Not just there, but here. 
The Lord was with them. God is with His people. Friends, God is with His people in the worst of circumstances. God is with His people. Always. Some of you may remember seeing this truth clearly in what's probably the most famous psalm. Psalm 23. In just a few verses that begin, right, we learn that God is with His people not only in prosperity, but in adversity. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. That's prosperity. A very few of you, I imagine, are on these green pastures right now. But some of you have been there. There's green pastures. Oh, it's just so nice. Green pastures. There's a stream. A stream. Still waters. Oh, it's just so nice. You can hear the birds chirping. No suffering here. No pain here. Being guided on paths of righteousness. I'm doing well. Walking with the Lord in close communion with Him. This beautiful path before me. It's brightly lit. It's laid out for me. This is wonderful. And when you're there, the Lord is with you. Do you remember the next verse? Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? For you are with me. Still there. The Lord is with Joseph not only in his prosperity, the Lord is with Joseph in his adversity. This means that everything. Said the statement earlier in the sermon, but let's punctuate now the word everything. Everything in Joseph's life was governed by God's providential care. That means that highlighting providence in the life of Joseph is more than highlighting the good that comes his way and the mountaintops. So if you're going to look at Joseph's life, and we say, okay, let's look at his life and let's highlight, let's draw attention to providence in his life. Well, if everything that happens is under God's providential care, then that means that if you're going to highlight providence in Joseph's life, it is more than highlighting the good that comes his way. It's more than highlighting the mountaintops. Highlighting providence in the life of Joseph is highlighting the bad that comes his way as long as the good, as well as the good. And it's highlighting the deep, deep valleys as well as highlighting the mountain peaks because it's all from the hand of God. And it is all God's providence. I've found that it is common for Christians, and I think I've said this too, it is common for Christians when good 
or unexplainable things happen to say, oh, it's a God thing. That's providence. And to highlight those, something unexplainable happens in your life. It's just, it's a, it was just a God thing. And curiously, it's always a good thing that happened when we say that. And so we highlight God's providence when the good things come our way. And so just missing the swerving car was providential. And getting an early diagnosis of the cancer was, praise God, providential. But is not the fatal car accident. And the cancer diagnosis that comes far too late. Also providential. The Lord is with you. Everything is governed by God's providential care. It's a God thing. It's all a God thing. I don't have the answer to this question. I really don't. But I ask it of myself quite a bit. Why do we find it helpful to ignore or deny God's providential hand behind our tragedies? Why do we do that? Why do we find it Helpful to ignore or deny God's providential hand behind our tragedies. It is all a God thing in the life of Joseph. And friends, it is all a God thing in your life. Whatsoever may come to pass, it is God's good governorship by His providential care over all your life. Let me try and helpfully wrap this up. Let me try to helpfully wrap this up. Because I think that many of you might wrestle when you hear that because if it's all a God thing, how is that really helpful? I mean, help me there. Okay, the Lord is with Joseph and the Lord is with me and the good and the bad. I understand so when the good happens, I should say, it's a God thing. I should keep saying that. But when the, when the bad things happen, I should say, it's a God thing. Should, the only difference is I'm either smiling or frowning. But it's, it's a God thing. Right, so I understand that. But, but, but how is that helpful? Let's, let's get real practical here. How is that helpful? If God is with me, but I still end up in the pit, or Potiphar's house, or in prison or jobless or spouseless or childless, how is that any good to me? I mean, frankly, bluntly, how is that of any use to me? If I still end up in the pain, if I still end up suffering, if I still lose my husband, if I still lose my kids, if I still lose my job, if I still lose my health, well, thank you very much. Good. So it's a God thing. God is behind it. But how is that helpful? 
One author, Terence Fratham, in his commentary in Genesis, he says, divine presence does not mean preventative medicine or a quick fix of whatever may befall a person of faith. Okay, then what good is it? Without saying all that could be said in response to that question. Because I think there's a lot that could be said in response to that question. I would say this, and when I thought about how to say this, it came out very sort of elementary and almost childish. And I decided that was good. (laughs) To know that God is with us is to know that God is for us and ultimately everything will be okay. I mean, I know that's what I want to know. And I know that that's what we tend to tell people even if we don't have a clue. It's going to be what? It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Well, the truth is, you've heard me say this before. We, I don't know that. I don't know that. And if, if your child just got diagnosed with cancer, I can't with a clear conscience look at you and say, everything's going to be okay. Because I know what you think that means. And I don't know if your child's going to live. I don't know if they're going to be healed. I don't know if your circumstances are going to change or not. Which is why did you catch it? There's a very important word that was in my answer to that question. And it's that if God is with you, then ultimately everything is going to be okay. It means that God is going to make all things right. It means that everything bad and sad is going to be undone. It means that one day everything will make sense. It means that one day the, the tapestry will be done, the the painting will be finished. And that ultimately, it really will be okay. And you won't have any sadness next to Jesus. And there won't be any tears that will be shed. There, there won't be regret. There won't be guilt. There won't be shame. Everything will be made right. And the reminder that God keeps giving us of that is, I'm always with you. I'm always with you in everything that happens in your life. Even those things that would threaten to... uh, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We sing that, don't we? Do you know that? 
But this world is filled with such evil that it threatens every hour of every day to completely undo us. But if you belong to the Lord, you will not be undone. Amen. You know, in the Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian is on his way to the celestial city, he knows he's going to get there. And one day he does get there, but his road there is rough. It's ugly. It is not a yellow brick road. God doesn't save him and then just say, oh, and for the rest of your life, I just want you to enjoy this wonderful highway that will just get you safe and sound. You will not get there safe and sound. You will be bloodied and battered, but you'll get there. In between salvation and the celestial city is the slough of despond. But guess who's there? The Lord. Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. You may feel like it already has, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't know if anyone ever captured this truth that Genesis 39 brings us. I don't know if any human being ever captured this truth as well as William Cowper did in a poem that he wrote in 1774 entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He was qualified to write this poem because starting with the death of his mom when he was six years old, he lived a long life of severe depression to the point of trying to commit suicide several times, only to fail. He became a Christian in 1764 in an insane asylum where he was a patient when he found a Bible sitting on a bench. Now, three years later, he met a man named John Newton. John Newton was an ex-slave trader who'd been dramatically converted by Christ, was now a pastor in Olney, England. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, they became friends. John Newton became a mentor to William Cowper, stood by his side even when John Newton moved away and helped him through his life, which was one long slough of despond. And they decided to write a book of poems and hymns together. And God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which I'll read, is one of William Cowper's 68 contributions that he made to that book of poems and hymns. So let me close by reading you this poem. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your truth upon which all other truth is built. And we have nothing good to say, God, if not to be built on the foundation of Your truth. And everything beautiful and everything good and everything helpful is built on the foundation of Your truth. So thank You for revealing Your truth to us. Thank You for giving us things to cry about and sing about and rejoice about and mourn about. God, thank You for making things right in us and through us. And we look forward to the day when You will come back. We look forward to an end to a life of sin and misery and Jesus and joy and a life that will be just Jesus and joy. In the meantime, strengthen us, God, by Your Spirit and by Your Word. May we all be spiritual oak trees in the middle of storms that we would stand firm, be faithful, loving You publicly and privately for Your glory and for Your namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.